Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's webinar call. Today, May 12th, we discuss Hollywood's recent Best Picture winner shines a spotlight on the harms of the administrative state. My name is Guy DeSantis, and I'm a, an assistant director of practice groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have with us our moderator, Eileen O'Connor. She is chairman of the executive committee of the Federalist Society's Administrative Law and Regulation Practice Group. For six years during the administration of President George W. Bush, she was the Assistant Attorney General of the United States responsible for the tax division of the Department of Justice. She's now in private practice with her own firm. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them for when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. We, the floor is yours. Thank you, Guy. Welcome all to this program about one of the many ways in which the federal government regulates the activities of the American fishing industry. As Guy said, after our speakers have discussed our topic, they will respond to the questions you have posed in the question, in the question and answer or chat feature. So as the discussion proceeds, go ahead and type in the questions you'd like to pose, including, if you have a preference, which speaker you would like to address it. It's not every day that an Academy Award-winning movie is made about administrative law. In fact, it has probably never happened before. You might have thought that the movie CODA, the acronym for Child of Deaf Adults, was about a family consisting of deaf adults and a hearing child, and it was. But to administrative law scholars and attorneys, it was also about how federal regulations affected that family. We are fortunate to have as our speakers today two attorneys, each of whom is presently engaged in litigation on behalf of clients challenging some of these regulations. Their biographies are in the materials for this program, so I'll just briefly introduce them so we can get straight to the discussion of our topic. John Vecchioni is Senior Litigation Counsel at the nonprofit New Civil Liberties Alliance. His fishing industry regulation challenge is presently in the First Circuit. Eric Bolander is Managing Policy Counsel at Americans for Prosperity Foundation and Counsel at Cause of Action Institute. It is in this latter capacity that he is representing plaintiffs challenging some fishing industry regulations in the DC circuit. Before I pass the baton, I need to mention that I might occasionally interrupt a speaker and ask that he explain an acronym he has just used. The fishing industry and the laws and regulations governing it are full of acronyms most of us have not encountered before. Eric, get us started. Thank you uh, so much everyone for joining today and thank you so much uh, for the kind introduction. Um, you may have seen that CODA won Best Picture at the Oscars, and I had not watched the movie until I saw it won Best Picture, and I sat down with my wife one night and said, oh, let's watch this movie. It seems like a really nice movie. About 20 minutes into the movie, all of a sudden, some of the characters start talking about a regulation that I and, and John and both John and I have been litigating for like seven years now. And I was stunned. I turned to my wife and said, can you believe this? This must just be the only mention of it in the movie, but this is so exciting. Well, it turns out that this fishery regulation, which I'll describe in detail, was a main plot line and drove a lot, not all, but a lot of the primary conflict in the movie throughout the entire movie. And I don't, I, I don't want to say I'm, I'm overreaching here and saying that it is probably one of the greatest depictions 
of the harms of administrative law in American families that I've ever seen. Um, and a lot Outside of people- Outside of Ghostbusters, yes. <laughs> of course, um, that, I, that I've ever seen. And, and one thing that the movie really drives home, before I tell you about what happened here, is that, and I think this is something that all administrative law practitioners and people that tell stories need to understand and relate to people, is that when a federal or a state bureaucrat passes a regulation that might impose a new cost or a new paperwork burden, on the other end of that regulation very often is a small business and an American family sitting around the table at dinner, looking at each other and saying, how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to survive this? Is this going to put us out of business? Is this going to ruin the family business that we've had for decades or maybe even longer? And I think this movie does, does a great job of telling that story. And I think sometimes we get caught up in the very important issues of litigating administrative law. We need to not miss the opportunity to tell stories like that. So let me tell you a little bit about the story here. Um, the way fisheries are regulated in the United States is very complicated. So I'm going to try and give the shortest and, and most basic explanation I can. The fisheries are divided up into eight regional councils. And then the, it, within the councils, there's specific fisheries. There might be a ground fish fishery. There might be the fishery we're talking about today, uh, which is the herring fishery. And the councils uh, pass what are called fishery management plans or amendments to fishery management plans. Um, and the councils have both government um, and industry participants on. In order for a new regulation under the governing statute, which is the Magnuson-Stevens Act to be passed, uh, most of the time it needs to originate in the Fishery Management Council. So they, they come up with a new fishery management plan um, and say, you know, XYZ is going to be regulated this way. Um, there's, a, there's a public hearing period. There's, there's all sorts of procedural issues there. Then it goes up to the Department of Commerce, uh, which has governing, you know, obviously the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is under the Department of Commerce for both NOAA and the Department of Commerce to review the regulation um, and then approve and then in most cases implement it. The issue we're dealing with here, and that's in the movie CODA, is that the statute says, the Magnuson-Stevens Act says that the government can require fishermen um, to carry monitors on their boat, which are basically government minders to watch them fish and ensure that they comply with um, the, the law and regulations and whatever it may be. Called uh, observers. Observers, right. They're called observers and monitors. Um, and I recently wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed that Anna, you know, said this is sort of like a taxi cab driver has to have a state trooper ride along with him to make sure he doesn't speed and doesn't overcharge passengers. Um, and the statute does require this. It is an extraordinary invasion of the, of the fishermen's privacy on the boat. A lot of times they have to. They bunk on the boat. They watch a lot more on the boat um, than just sort of the compliance measures that, that you would think of. Um, but then the government went a step further. And when it started running out of money to pay for these monitors, these observers, it said, well, let's make the industry pay for them. So it first started with the groundfish industry, which is what you see in the movie Coda, where they finalized a rule that said, well, even though, and of course, in our view, even while there's nothing in the statute that gives the government the authority to do this, not only do they have to carry these, these government minders on their boat, they also have to pay the salary for them to ride the boat. And that salary and those other fees and costs them riding the boat can be from between $700 to $800 a day. And the movie very accurately depicted it and talked about it as $800 a day. Now, when you think about a commercial fisherman, I think some people get a misconception. You're talking about some big boat out deep in the ocean. Most commercial fishermen, particularly in the New England fishery that we're talking about here, are small family-owned boats. They've been, they've been in the families for years. Maybe they have one boat, maybe they have a couple more. These are really 
like you know, salt to the earth American small business when you think about it. And so these regulatory costs are very significant on the amount of money that they take home every day. And indeed, in some circumstances, they could actually lose money because they don't make enough money to cover all the costs of their crew and everything else and also pay these government minders um, that ride their boat. Now, at Cause of Action, we sued on behalf of the ground fishermen um, that are depicted in the movie. Um, but we lost on, on a, an interesting statute of limitations technicality. So the rule that, was that was called the Gaithel case. The Gaithel case. That's right. The rule was actually promulgated in, or, or finalized in 2010, but they never enforced it. And in 2015, all of a sudden, the government started to decide, oh, we're going to implement and enforce it. It was then in 2015 that we sued once they impl implemented it. The statute um, has a 30-day, yes, 30-day statute of limitations on challenges. Of course, we argued, well, 2015 is when they implemented, so that triggered it, and the courts disagreed. So that went up in the First Circuit, never really got a substantive hearing, although... This, 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 the First Circuit ruled that the statute of limitation applied. The, the agency had cooled the mark. These fishermen don't have lawyers. They didn't even come to a lawyer because the government wasn't doing anything to them. Government actually says, now we're doing it to you. They go get a lawyer and the court says, you're out of time. So that's what happened in the Gaithel case. There was no substantive ruling. Sorry, Eric, just The lower court did opine on the merits in dicta. The no. first circuit didn't touch it. In dicta, it did fine erroneously in our viewpoint that the government had statutory authority here. And I'll get into why that's erroneous in just a moment. So they, the government then, they're not just going to stop at the ground fish fishery. They're going to try and expand this to every fishery. And their next target was the herring fishery um, in New England. This time we were ready. We knew it was coming. We sued within 30 days. There's no statute of limitations issue. Um, and we get right to the merits. And the primary argument is this. The statute Nowhere in the Magnuson-Stevens Act is the government afforded any authority to shift costs onto fishermen in this fishery. Now, in this fishery is an important point because Congress did give the government authority to shift the monitoring costs onto, onto fishermen in three specific fisheries. So Congress looked at the statute and said, well, this is an RV point. There's no general authority here, but the North Pacific fishery, uh, a special program called a limited access privilege program, and the foreign fishery, we do want government to be able to bill the fishermen for the cost of having the observers and monitors on the boat. So we're going to give them authority in those three circumstances and those three circumstances only. So of course, we argue, first of all, there's silence in the statute. You can't do this. Second of all, even so, the fact that Congress went out of the way to give this explicit authority in three specific fisheries, and this is, you know, administrative law practitioners will say, well, that's the, the specific governs the general canon, right? If, if they have this general authority, then why did the fish? Why did Congress feel necessary to give these three specific authorities? The, the specific would, or the general would swallow the specific. Um, there's an alternative argument of the expressio unius, right? That by implication, that they don't have this authority. And so we brought this case. Uh, we had some other challenges as well on on procedure that the government prejudged the legality of of the amendment. And unfortunately, we lost at the district court level. Now, both us and the government argued, in our case, John has a, a separate case, which he'll talk about, um, that the case should be decided on Chevron step one. We say it's it's unambiguous that they don't have this authority, and the government says, well, it's the opposite way ambiguous, right? It's unambiguous to you one way and unambiguous to them on the other way. Exactly, exactly. And so we both the government, and that's the one thing the government agreed on us with, well, it's unambiguous. It's just we both went a different way. The district court found for the government on Chevron step one, he did say in like one sentence, 
Alternatively, I would have found for them on Chevron step two if I hadn't found for them on step one. So we appealed. Uh, the appeal has been fully briefed and argued at the D.C. Circuit. Um, of note, uh, Judge then, then Judge Kadanji Brown Jackson, now Justice Designee Jackson, was on the panel. Um, and in the oral argument, um, I had a really interesting colloquy with her where she was sort of pressing me on, well, you need to basically disprove that the government has this authority. And my response is, well, that's sort of backwards. The, the obligation is on the government to show it has any authority at all, particularly a regulatory agency. But in addition, I think we did show that many other agencies um, have not exercised this sort of authority with a statute underneath. And the government's two primary arguments were, one, well, we have the implicit authority to shift costs and regulation just because they gave us the authority to carry the monitors. And in the alternative, there's a necessary and appropriate clause stacked at the end of a long statutory list that says nothing about charging fishermen for anything except for their permits. And that gives us the authority. And of course, our response um, is that Congress's silence rules the day. And in addition, we have the specific general cap. So our case is really focused on the statutory issues. John's case, uh, which is in the same fishery, but with different clients, has a uh, some unique issues in it, and I'll shift it over to him to talk about those. All right. So I, I'll give the name of these cases. Uh, um, Eric's case with cause of action that we started cause of action was um, called is called Loper Bright. That's the lead plaintiff. Ours is called Relentless, named after the company and the ship. Uh, that's the lead uh, plaintiff. The other one is Huntress. So the good names, I think, for a case. But in any event, um, so we we filed in. Um, in uh, Rhode Island, and and, and the, we lost also an across motion for summary judgment on many of the same issues. I'll talk about some of the different ones, but in our case, the judge said this is this is very ambiguous. I, I it's ambiguous. It, that's Chevron step one for the non lawyers out there. That the first thing a court says is is this statute clear or not clear? If it's not clear, it's ambiguous. So the ambiguous statute, you see, then goes and looks at other things and uses the canons of interpretation and other sort of things. So he looked at him and he said, hey, there's Chevron. That's the case where you have to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretations. So um, he says, I can't get you there on uh, on the fact that it's unambiguously in your corner, but you're the government. I've got to defer to you, um, even though I got these two litigants in front of me. One of them, I got to put my thumb on the scale of their view of the law. So now, I'm not a great fan of that, but that's certainly uh, what they've told the district courts to do. So that's what he did. And he sent it up to the First Circuit. And we're there now and it's in briefing. We haven't argued it. But I find it. Uh, there's one thing I want to mention about the Gaithel case that's interesting. And it talked. Eric talked about telling stories of what's happening to people. And I think that certainly appellate practitioners, if you just practice appeals, sometimes you don't do this at all. Sometimes you forget at the trial level, too. But you have to. There's a lot of legal issues and you might be outraged, but you have to tell the story of what's actually happening. And we told that story in Gaithel and that the First Circuit had on it. Souter is uh, Justice Souter is is uh, retired on the bench on the First Circuit. And he was on the panel and and he and another judge said, uh, you know, this, they didn't make the statute of limitations, but Congress should really look at this funding issue and should make its intentions clear and should fund. And they did. They 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 followed their their uh, their uh, suggestion for a while. And Eric always points out but there was a dissent who said we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be telling Congress anything. That's a that's a uh, that's outside our bailiwick. Um, but anyways, it 
worked out for the client, at least that, that little, that little Philip. Um, but I, but I think in relentless, we have a couple of things going on here and two of them, the, the constitutional issues are kind of twofold. It's really one, which is th- these, um, these onboard monitors, uh, they're a market. They're a market created by the government that they force us into. So we use the Obamacare case to say you can't do that. You can't put us in a market we don't want to be in just because we're we're you know you have control of the resource, meaning the fish. Um, but there's another uh, argument in there that we've we've used below. It's kind of in our briefs, and it's 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 this the, and and and. I think that uh, the Loper Bright case had this as well. Part of the reason we don't believe that the agency has this power is that there are tons of statutes where Congress has said, we have the power of the purse. You shouldn't do this because we're supposed to spend the money. They say, we have the power to tax. We have the power to make fees. So you agency should not be doing this. And there's a number of statutes that say that to them in a number of other cases. And there are, as, as Eric pointed out, a lot of things in the uh, Magnuson-Stevenson Act, I'll sometimes call that the MSA, lots of things in the MSA saying, well, you can charge foreign vessels, right? We don't get to tax them. We don't get to control them. We don't like them really fishing here. So we're going to we're going to let you charge the foreign vessels. And it's clear. And then some of you might watch the most dangerous catch, right? That's the Northern Pacific. That's it's, it's a it's it's big capital intensive um, fishing with, you know, a lot of money involved. You pull up those king crabs, you can sell them for whatever you want over here in Fairfax, right? Um, so, so it's it's more profitable and 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 it's huge. And Congress may say, hey, you guys can pay these costs, so we'll do that. So there's a legislative judgment that's made that we might not like and our clients may not like, but at least we can read it and say, oh, look, there it is. It's not coming out of a bureaucracy that just wants to do this and says, you know, I'd like to do more of this meddling than Congress has allowed. So I'm going to find some way to allow the people I want to meddle with to pay for it. And uh, that is just that is where we are. And the other issue we have is that our boats come out of Rhode Island. They they are freezer boats. They go out and they stay out for days for like a week to two weeks and they can't catch as many fish as everyone else per day because they catch them. Then they process them there, freeze them and then uh, sell them when they dock. So you can't check the fish on the dock side because they're already frozen in boxes to go off where they're going to go. And you, you also can't. Um, so you can't take any advantages of the other exemptions. And so but you got to pay the monitors by day. So we said, listen, why can't you say if you catch a certain amount, 50 metric tons, if you catch a certain amount of, of, of herring um, per, per trip, um, you don't have to have these monitors if it's, if it's below it. But of the other boats only go out for two or three days, right? So they're out for two or three days, and then they come back to dock and drop off the herring. So this is the math, and this is why it's so arbitrary and capricious. And I'm going to get a little excited about this because I don't think you can argue with math. Right. You can have different opinions about everything, but two plus two has to equal four. It has to. Um, if it doesn't equal four, I don't know what we're doing. So what I explained to the court is under this regulation, every other boat in the fishery can get 50,000 metric tons of herring. Go back to the dock, unload it, go out, get another 50,000 tons, come back to the dock. That's four days. They do this. They do this. They can get 
300 metric tons of herring in the two weeks my client's out there. My client goes out, gets 60,000 tons of herring over the two weeks, and they've got an onboard monitor that they're paying $800 a day for two weeks for. It's outrageous. It's outrageous that the, the, um, the regulation has been set up with no exception for this that takes less fish. So they're treating people who could be taking more fish worse than my client who could be taking less fish. And we told them about it and they go, ah, you know, you could take a lot of fish in those two weeks. Well, yeah, if we took the, if we took the amount per day, whatever it is per day that they're allowed to take, it would be the same. It's apples to apples. It's it's it, 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 you know, it's a transitive property, as you learn in fourth grade, I think um, second grade, if you're smart. I, I think that uh, so we're hoping that there's somebody who is not, you know, an English major alone before they went to law school on the uh, on the panel. So we'll see. Um, but I do think that the uh, I want to go back to Coda because it is a really nice little picture. Um, it's it's well done. There's not a there's not a wrong note in it. And I say all the time about Hollywood that if you've ever been involved in something, I can only watch a couple of law movies. I can watch my cousin Vinny and The Verdict, but other than that, they sort of are off putting if you're a real lawyer. This is of something we know well. We're like, oh my god, they're getting this exactly right. I can't believe it. This is how. The fishermen talk, first of all. This is how they talk to the regulators. This is how they talk whenever there's a proposal for something like this. So, you know, it's very true to life. And then the, the observer who comes on the boat, there is sort of a cultural clash that we always see with our clients and the observers. The, the guys who have been on the boats for, you know, 30 or 40 years are, are salty type guys. Um, and, and then the observers are often young people from Woods Hole or, you know, BC or Harvard or something. And they've got, they majored in oceanography or something. And in the movie, she comes on and her, and her, her seal skin, um, uh, you know, water, uh, to, to shed water is brand new and still has the tags on it. And all these guys are looking at her like, you know, you know, maybe you could have put on the thing before you got on the boat, but so I, I really recommend uh, seeing Cody if you have any interest in um, how regulations affect everything. And I, I brought up Ghostbusters because if you remember, that was the movie we always used for examples of how a regulator could really screw things up because this their, their business model didn't fit into his regulation. So he just shut it down. And then, of course, uh, all the ghosts went all over New York. So um, I, I, this, this movie has taken that over for me in a lot of ways because it's so good. Yeah, I would say thinking about the movie, it, it really is an accurate depiction in many ways. They get, they get the, the dollar per day right. There's a meeting up now. It condenses the timeline a little bit. Okay, that happens when you make a movie. That's fine. There's a meeting of fishermen in the dock where you hear their very real and visceral reaction. Um, to what's going on. This is going to be 800 a day. This is, I don't make that much money a day. This is going to kill our business. How are we supposed to profit? That's real life. That's what really happened. Um, this is an, 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 a, a huge burden. And I, I let off by talking about the conversation around the dinner table. That really happens in the movie. It's a real life depiction of what, what these fishermen went through and are still going through in many respects when dealing with these regulations. And keep in mind, this is a, this is an industry that's already very heavily regulated. Okay. So this is a regulatory burden as being a significant one with real costs. It's being placed on top of, I think there's seven overlapping federal and state agencies 
that already regulate fishermen when they have to go out. They have to deal with what the feds want. They have to deal with what the state wants. They have to deal with what the Coast Guard wants. They have to, and you see it in the movie. Uh, this is also depicted. They can get boarded by the Coast Guard at any time. And in fact, in the movie, I was, so I said, well, you know, it's Hollywood. I'm sure they'll make nice with the government in the end and we'll all find out that it was worth it. That's not what happened, which would be inaccurate. That's not <laughs> what happened. Um, the, the observer comes on the boat, calls in the family because they're deaf on the boat, tips off the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard boards them and they lose their license. Um, and it really goes to show to my point that the observers are, are looking at more than just um, the regulations uh, that they're supposed to be observing on the boat. She and wasn't the counting fish, right? The, the other thing that the agency does all the time, right? They always, they always, and they put it all in their briefs. Oh, if this regulation isn't approved, there'll be no fish in the sea. Uh, and they do this all the time and they get further and further away from what it is. I mean, I have another uh, fish case down in the Gulf of Mexico where they put, they say that they can, these are charboat captains. They're not even taking any fish themselves, but they say that they can put a GPS tracker that goes back to the government and tells them where you are all the time, even when you're not fishing, even when you're not fishing. Now that's kind of, and then, and then they put in there, Oh, well, if we don't have this, there's not going to be any fish in the Gulf of Mexico. These guys are taking their wives to dinner or going sightseeing and we don't know what's going on. It's very dangerous. I mean, it's kind of, it, it really, points out where the regulatory agencies go if they're not checked by uh, by judicial review. And, and what the regulatory agency was saying, well, all these regulations are necessary to prevent overfishing and diminishment of the fishing stocks. Um, and even if you do concede that, not everyone's really re ready to concede that, but even if you do, these guys are already heavily regulated. The, the government sets quota on how much fish they're allowed to catch and bring back in. They establish all sorts of standards for the way they're supposed to fish. So you could argue that, of course, yes, the, the government, the, the Congress did authorize the placement of these observers on the boat. So statutorily that. Which no, none of our cases are challenging. Right. It says it in the statute. So we went. Yeah. So the government harps on this. Well, these guys are necessary. To better, well, sure. Then pay for them. Because it's an, when usually when there's an unfunded mandate, we all know what happens with an unfunded mandate. You don't just turn to the citizen and say, okay, fork over your cash. And the citizen says, well, what authority do you have to do that? It's like, well, I don't need any. It's implicit in the statute. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing to demand of an industry that's already heavily burdened by regulation, and there's no statutory authority um, to do it. And in, and in fact, in our brief, we compare it to the Declaration of Independence, where uh, they say that the king has created offices, you know, to swarm and eat out our substance, because this is an office that has kind of been created. Eric, I believe that this is slightly different from the observer that's in the statute. They do slightly different things. And even the regulation says they're slightly different. So they've created an office that they're requiring these people to pay for. And the other thing about it is they say that they're paying the administrative costs. OK, so the government says we're paying the administrative costs. You're just paying for what's benefit to you, which is have this guy on your boat. So all the food and salary and everything and his birth, you're doing that already. Um, so uh, what benefit is to them? It's no benefit to the fishermen. It's a benefit to the government, which makes it you know, more like a tax than a fee. But in any event, I, I think that uh, CODA is is uh, a movie that you, that really brings us home. And um, we, Eric and I were joking earlier about the fact that uh, 
okay, no one's going to believe this is about regulation, but if you've been working on a case for seven years and you see that case come to life on a movie screen, you have to be forgiven for thinking the movie's all about that and not about family relations and coming of age story. Don't believe any of that. I have, I have two questions. One is a, a practical question for either of you. And when you answer that, I'll ask you the second one. Uh, the first one is mechanics. So the monitors slash observers have to be paid by the by the fishermen. Um, how how is how is that done? Does the fisherman pay the government and then the government pays the monitor? They've got to pay the monitor slash observer directly. Yeah, it's the, the government forces them to contract. Now, this and this the government tries to use this to say, oh, well, it's not us forces them to contract directly with third party mo third party monitoring companies that the government must then approve. Um, so the government selects a list of companies and said, here's the companies that you can negotiate with or I'm sorry, that you can contract with in order to pay for the observers. Um, and so the government, one of the, the arguments that the government made in its briefing is, wow, the money goes um, direct to them. And there's nothing in the statute about that. Well, first of all, the foreign fisheries provision of the statute actually talks about this exact function and gives them the, in the foreign fisheries and only foreign fisheries, not this fishery, the statute says you can have them contract um, and pay directly to a monitor. So of course our response is, well, Congress obviously thought that if you had this authority, uh, they needed to delegate it specifically. Because if you had it generally, why would it be in here? So yeah, it, it, it's not that it goes direct to the government, it goes out. Now in the other two, in, in the other fisheries, Congress has developed a system of fees um, that is deposited and then paid out, but they did contemplate such a, a, a relationship also in the foreign fishery. John, I don't know if you want to add anything. No, this I, is exactly what you were saying, John, is that the government created a, created a market here. Created that's, a, exactly, that's exactly right. The other thing they did, which I think this is not a main point, but what they do is we, we have another complaint in our, it, it's that for some reason our boats get assigned the monitors, the non-pay people you don't pay for, we get signed more often. And I think it's because we have bigger boats. And then there's another regulatory matter. The observers have to have a certain amount of seat time. Well, if you go out with us for two weeks, you get seat time a lot easier than going on the boats for two or three days and then re-upping and re-upping and finding out when they're going out. So we have another uh, part of this, which they really haven't addressed, is why are so many guys assigned to our boats? But uh, it's true. You get it. You, they tell you that you have to have a monitor and then you have to go to the market of the monitors and go contract and bring them, bring them on board. Thanks. And my second question was, uh, and you probably want to answer this individually, what does the government have to say for themselves uh, in response to your challenges? I mean, obviously they won uh, at the district court in D.C. and in Rhode Island. Uh, so what does the government have to say for itself? There's the key argument the government makes is the Magnuson-Stevenson Act is broad and large. It, it gives them power to regulate the fishery. And that has natural consequences. And one of them is, is that this, these observers are like, if they require you to have breakaway nets, so the fish don't get on there. They, they, they think it's like that. But, the, but even that section of the statute actually says the various things, equipment. This is not, the, the, the observers are already, the cost of the observers to be on your boat, you already carry. No one has challenged the fact that if, if observers on your boat, you have to have a place for them, right? That's a cost. But um, it's a different thing than a salary being paid for a government worker. And these guys are government workers. And you can't have the individual pay for them without congressional authorization anywhere else that I know of. 
So um, the government then says that that necessary and appropriate cause. And my view is that's narrower. And there's a nice case out of the D.C. Uh, it's, it's Judge Leon has a nice case out of uh, where he says is that, that that's a constraint um, or, or that it cabins it. I forget the exact language, but so it has to be necessary and appropriate. Well, we don't think it's necessary because we know because there's observers who are not paid by us who are on there. So it's not necessary and it's not appropriate because it isn't our job. So uh, but they say that necessary and appropriate uh, means uh, like they can do anything that they think is good becomes necessary and appropriate. And and in the Chevron deference area, that's what Judge Smith said. Kind of he kind of hinted. He says, look. They got necessary and appropriate and Chevron deference. What am I supposed to do? I think that was kind of his attitude. You know, the government in our case makes two primary arguments. One, you know, they do make so necessary and appropriate argument. I won't repeat it, um, you know, is, is part of it. But the primary argument is that when we are given, at least on appeal, when we are given the authority to carry these observers, implicit in that authority is the is the ability to sh- shift this compliance cost. Um, onto the fishery, just like you would shift a compliance cost in other industries. Um, so we have two responses to that. One is that, again, I've beaten this to death, but Congress gave this authority to shift the compliance cost elsewhere in the statute. It withheld it here. That speaks volumes, regardless of what you say of whether it's a compliance cost or not, or, or say it's like other industries. And second of all, like John just said, this is an extraordinary um, thing. It's not like nets. Okay. Well, they say you have to use specific type of nets. I have to use a net to fish anyways. Um, you know, this is paying the fee, the cost of someone, um, to be on your boat. So that, that's a real distinction. But again, I think the idea that Congress thought it necessary to delegate the power elsewhere solves, I mean, that to me, that should end the case. Um, but, uh, you know, the government goes on the necessary and appropriate. So there's a list of 13 things that the government can do. B1 says they can charge fees for permits. That's the only mention of charging fishermen in that entire list. B8. And we've been charged that we have permits. We've been charged the fee. We paid the fee. That's not this. B8 says, oh, they can carry, make them carry monitors in the boat. That's it stops right there. Elsewhere in the statute, it talks about carrying monitors and other things. And then there's a section two that says, and you can charge them fees for it. And then at the end of the list, it's actually B, there's 13 items in the list, but it's technically B14 says anything necessary and appropriate for the above. Well, that entire above list has one mention of fees. And so Congress obviously thought, I mean, a permit, right? The most basic thing you would associate a fee with, Congress still took the time to write down in this Magnuson-Stevens Act that you can charge them fees for it. And so to us, you have to look at the context of the statute. You have to look at what Congress did here. We think, I, I'm not gonna go into legislative history because I don't think it's necessary and I, I have feelings about it, but even if you were someone who was interested in legislative history, um, you would find legislative history strongly supports this too. There is just no evidence that Congress indicated would wanted to give this authority. And there is plenty of evidence that they wanted to withhold this authority in this circumstance and only grant it in three other circumstances. There is one other thing they say. They say that uh, we used to do this before Congress said that we could put observers on. We used to put observers on and we put observers on and charged for it before and no one's complained. Well, what I always said, so they say that that, that Congress knew about that. Congress knew we were doing this. And I always say about that, basically no one sued them, probably because there's a 30-day statute of limitations, to tell you the truth. But but whatever, the, it's basically the old bank robbers. I've robbed lots of banks and I've never been caught. So how can you catch me now? 
Well, I mean, a, a better stressing analogy is I've robbed lots of banks and Congress came and said, okay, you can only rob this bank. <laughs> right. And then I kept robbing the other banks and said, what are you talking about? Um, and and uh, again, the, the, the history of, of how the statute was developed and everything shows this was a very contentious thing. This was not, a, you know, they argue all oh, this authority was assumed. We had already, that's not the case when you look at the, the legislative history and the comments and all of that. And, and, and throughout this entire process, from the council process to the NOAA review process to the implementing regulation process, commenters, including my co-counsel Ryan Mulvey, who has been engineering this from day one, have been saying time and time again, this is unlawful, here is why, and spelling it out. Fishermen have been saying, this could destroy my livelihood. It's not like Noah had no idea. They were put on notice time and time again. I mean, my colleague Ryan just sat before them at the New England Fishery Management Council and read it straight to them as they were all sitting there. Uh, there's a scene in the movie where they have a New England Fishery Management Council meeting. It's in like a beer hall with like four people. That's probably the most unrealistic thing. It's actually in a conference room at a hotel with like 20 people sitting around tables. But he sat down and said, what you guys are about to do is unlawful and here's why. So they've been on notice about this from day one. They have fully understood what they're doing and plucked forward with it anyways. And unfortunately, uh, to this point, the courts have blessed that, that course of action. We have a question from Warren Belmar, uh, which strikes at the heart of something that uh, I've been studying for many years. And that is, I, I'm calling them switchbacks. When you go from one administration to another, uh, and it was particularly egregious uh, last January, the incoming administration found it necessary to disavow and undo everything the prior administration had done. Uh, and in the, uh, in the in the tax arena where I've spent my professional life, I've seen uh, the attitudes of people in various agencies uh, change with leadership changes. And, and so that's Warren's question also. When the leadership and the regulatory agencies changes from administration to administration, have you seen any change in the actions of lower echelon officials who drafted and are enforcing the regulatory program? In no. this one, in this one, I'll, in this one, no. This was a Trump era rule. It has been carried over by the Biden administration. Um, there are other things, you know. We don't. Not neither of us have litigated, I think, quota rates of fishes, of fisheries. There is a feeling that I think there's a feeling that in in uh, Democratic administrations that they less there's less care for whether or not the fishermen survive rather than the fish. And in Republican administrations, maybe there's more care about the, the fishermen than the fish. And it's supposed to be both the way MSA works, is supposed to be both. But on this issue. And I've seen what you've seen many times, but on this issue, I've seen not a hair's breadth of change. Yeah, you know, we tried. I'm gonna be honest. I mean, we we raised the profile of this issue very high. I had a, you know, a, a former client who used to go out. He had signs that said "Make commercial fishing great again." I mean, there was a, a real effort to bring this issue to the attention of the Trump administration. Um, but this is one of those issues where it's not a high profile. It is now. Uh, but at that time, it was not a top of the headline news. Um, and you have career staff within NOAA that have been pushing this for a long time. You had folks within uh, Commerce as well. And ultimately, the, the Secretary of Commerce could have declined um, to approve this regulation. And that actually kicks off an interesting series of mechanisms within the statute where if the Fisheries Council keeps not doing uh, or fails to do what the Commerce Secretary wants them to do, the Commerce Secretary can start promulgating uh, some of its own views on things. But that did not happen here, unfortunately. And, and quite honestly, um, 
from my seat, I did not see a change from administration to administration. And we, John and I litigated this issue under the Obama administration um, at cause of action with the first case. We litigated this issue under a Trump administration rule and the arguments and the things we run into are very, very similar. And in Gaithel, it is interesting though, both senators were interested in this. I mean, the, the Democratic and the Republican, I think that's why I got funded eventually. I don't know, but the Senate, uh, move slowly, but they at least both of them took an interest in this. John, would you spell the name of that case you're referring to? Gaithel. Yeah, what G- is that? G-O-E-T-H-E-L-R-A-E-L. G-O-E-T-H-E-L. Yeah. And, and that you was said that was the first circuit? V Commerce, yes. It was uh, D- uh, DNH, uh, the District of New, New Hampshire. Yeah, out of New Hampshire. Uh, and that's really when you watch. The ground fishermen, so code is ground fishermen, which is so all fishermen, when they catch different fish, they have different approaches and methods to catching fish. It's really fascinating to everyone to learn about it. Um, these guys are awesome. They're incredible at their craft. You go out there and watch them mend nets and stuff. It's just incredible. Um, but ground fishermen catch fish in a little bit of a different way. Um, and that's what you see in the movie is the ground fish fishery. And uh, explain the difference between ground fishing and other fishing. What's the other fishing called? Well, there's, I mean, so here we're talking about herring fishing. If you watch on TV, you might see uh, Deadliest Catch, which Sean referred to before. You might see Wicked Tuna. They might catch with long lines. They might catch with harpoons. Um, They might, you know, trawl, you know, bottom trawlers, which is what we see more often in these regulations. Um, So there's there's bottom trawlers and mid-sea trawlers. And then what's the other one? I forget what the other one is, but it's like where you go and the fish stay at different places. So you're getting different stuff. Now, one of the people uh, in the audience has commented that uh, when I Google a documentary on regulation of the fishing industry, what comes up is a Netflix uh, piece called Sea Piracy, which exposes the detrimental effects of fishing, not only for our oceans, but for the entire planet. Um, she's wondering whether the search engine might be biased. Well, I mean, this might as well have been a documentary, but it's, it's, um, this one was fiction, but really based on real life. Um, so, you know, I've watched some of the, some of the stuff online. I know cause of action. We have a video that we put out on our first case about David Gaithel. If you look on YouTube, you should be able to find it. I know John has done uh, a video at NCLA, um, for the relentless case. Um, and I think both videos are really insightful. Um, but I'm going to be honest, as much as I like the videos we made, nothing beats the, the Hollywood depiction um, of the real impacts of the regular production values. I think the budgets were different. Budgets were a little different. Yeah. And I saw someone ask where they can watch this. This movie's on Apple TV. Um, and so that's that's where I saw. I saw a response. Someone says it's opening tomorrow. Yeah. In theaters again. Yeah. And I, again, I, you know, I saw the acceptance speech and I heard someone thank the, the fisherman in the acceptance speech. And it just. I was like, that's interesting. But I sat down watching the movie, having no idea what was in it. Uh, so it's just watching a case you've litigated appear before your eyes uh, in Hollywood was really amazing. Um, and I just, to, to talk about storytelling, this is something, and I speaking to litigators here, whether you're an appellate attorney, whether you're a trial attorney, you're in the district court, um, storytelling is really, really important, particularly when you're dealing with regulatory overreach, um, because you have to think about that Congress, you know, may be watching too. Um, the regulators are looking and, and judges, whether they should or shouldn't, that's a different conversation, but they do pay attention um, to sort of the facts of the case and they can be really important. So don't let those slide by. Of course, 
the issues of law are most important and things to present. Um, but the facts of what's happening to these families here, especially, and, and I'll, I will say they are relevant to some extent where on our Chevron step two argument, we, we argue that the government failed to properly consider cost um, and burden on the industry. Um, so if the court does get to Chevron step two, that's one of our primary arguments is that under precedent, they can't just hoist whatever they want on an industry and suffocate. Um, that would be arbitrary and capricious um, without properly uh, evaluating it and properly explaining. It. So that's an important fact. And I will tell you this about that storytelling. One of the things about almost all of these judicial opinions is how they use fishing terminology. Like if you read, if you read uh, Judge Smith's opinion out of New Hampshire in the Relentless case, it is just one fishing analogy after another. And I've noticed uh, in the precedent in the First Circuit, they do the same thing. I mean, it, it is, they, it does kind of grab them, whether the case, cases come out right or not. The fact of the, the fishing and how long it's, it's particularly New England, how, how long and pervasive it is um, to, to the economy and mindset uh, is, is really comes out in the opinions, I think, because of the stories. It's one of America's oldest industries. And if you think about the movie, they could have set this movie in any industry, any situation. You know, obviously, the movie is primarily about, um, you know, the child and the deaf family and, and the and, um, you know, familial triumph. I mean, it's a very inspiring movie um, about a teacher that's persevering after a student. You know, they could have. And then the conflict of what the family is facing economically is driven by this regulation, which leads to sort of the family triumph in the end. Um, and sorry to spoil you, um, but it has a happy ending. Um, but you know, they could have picked any industry, uh, to set this in any type of small business in new England, they picked ground fishermen. Um, and this is something that traces its roots back, you know, to our country's founding basically. Um, and so if you're looking for salt of the earth, um, or I should say salt of the ocean, I can't even, salt I can't, see, how about salt of the sea? There you go. Um, the, these are the type of folks that are being affected by these regulations. It's not just People get this idea that it's just commercial. Oh, it's some big business. And that's just not the case. Like many industries in America, it is small businesses and family-owned businesses that pay the dearest price for regulatory overreach. And they're often the ones that either can't afford or can't get the attention to tell their story and to plead their case in court. Or, so we need to also... Or who get lawyers at nonprofits like our outfits because, um, you know, it's not like... Oil and gas has a lot of regulation, but it also has a lot of lawyers. A lot of money. A lot of money. All right. I see no more questions or comments. Uh, you guys want to make any final final comments before closing this up? I'll give it to you, the, that to you, Eric, and then I'll go. No, I, I appreciate so much everyone paying attention to this issue. I'm so glad that it's being brought into the spotlight now. Um, you know, I would continue to track these cases. John, I have an appeal in the D.C. Circuit. John's got an appeal in the First Circuit. We know how those things can sometimes end up. Um, and so we're hopeful that this case progresses forward and we get a good outcome and just tell stories, guys. I mean, that's my big message here is to tell stories find clients with great stories and make sure the little guy that is sometimes forgotten is getting that representation, particularly if you're a litigator for a nonprofit or you're at a firm and you're looking for pro bono opportunities. These are amazing opportunities, not only to advance um, some of the precedents and regulatory reform that we want to see in the courts, but also to help people that really need it. And so I would encourage you to seek out more of those uh, opportunities. Yeah. And I guess uh, my last uh, point on this is uh, to anyone who might be out there in Hollywood, uh, this is the way to do it in that you, it, 
there's certain things you do because you have to do them for the story. And I was reading the other day about the Navy and it's, and it's the Navy's alliance with movies and the Navy has certain things. If you're going to do a Navy movie, you can't do, they, they'll, they'll allow one explosion on a ship accidentally, but not like two or three, because they don't want you to think. So um, they're telling stories and, and sometimes you, you um, have to do things to drive the plot. But if you can drive the plot with real life this way, uh, it made it made everything better. So I, I think that it's good for lawyers, but also uh, there's no reason sometimes to Hollywood up the facts because they're compelling on their own if you just present them. Um, so I, I want to thank Federal Society. And I want to tell you, if you, have, if you do want to see anything more about this, the um, the video at the on the Gaithel case that's on the Cause of Action website and ours on the Relentless case at NCLA um, on our website uh, are both very good. And we have our, our client who speaks for Seafreeze and Relentless, Megan Lapp. She's been, she's been uh, Eric's client in, in, in the, or acquaintance in the past. I think that uh, she's very compelling and she's been in this industry for a long time. So if you have any more interest in this, I'd go to those two websites and I'd take a look at those two uh, videos because they're good. We've got an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal um, on the connection to Coda as well. I just linked in the chat. Uh, so please check that out and, and share it if you think it's helpful to folks. Really appreciate Thank you to the Federal Society and everyone for your time. Thank you to our speakers. I think this was a, a really informative discussion and it's a very, very important area. I thank the audience for attending and ask that you share uh, information about this podcast with everyone you know, uh, because it's going to be available uh, as a podcast uh, in a week or so. And uh, it, it's just really important information. I'm glad that uh, Eric and John were willing to spend some time with us talking about it today and at their websites, go to their websites because you can uh, download the documents in the cases. That's, that's what I did. And it's really, really fascinating. Thanks again, Eric and John. Now turning it back over to Guy for a wrap up. Yeah. Thank you all. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. And I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We also welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.